chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Most of you already know the story that's going to be told, the account that is given. It is obviously the account of Abraham offering Isaac as a sacrifice at the command of God. There's a lot of controversy when people uh, look at it. They're like, hold it, something isn't right here. This is not anything else like in the Bible. And theologically, people come out with some very wrong doctrine from this story. We're going to address all of those, but I've called it the proof is in the pudding. You may use that subject, or subject, you may use that statement uh, at times. Simply, it's been around for hundreds of years, I looked it up, and it simply means you can have a bunch of cooks standing around saying how great a cook they are and how great their dishes are, but the only thing that ultimately matters is when you sit down at the table, does it taste good? Will anybody eat it? Now, I don't do cooking. Thankfully, I don't do cooking. My wife does that. She does a great job. I do tractor pulling. In the pits, all the guys stand around like, yeah, my tractor really does this, and mine's good at this, and I've fixed it up, and it's better. You know what? All I want to say is take it out on the track. We're going to find out the proof is in the pudding. You know, if you pull further than everybody else, it, you, it worked. The point is, don't tell me about your Christianity. Now, that sounds stupid, doesn't it? Don't tell me about how great a Christian you are and how holy you are. Because this passage is going to tell us something. It's going to tell us, show it to me. Prove it to me. Vindicate what you say you believe in the attitude you have, the words you say, the actions you take. None of you have been called that I'm aware of to do what Abraham did. But Abraham, it says that Abraham was justified by his works. And that's where the theological problem comes in. Because people look at a single statement, take it out of context and say, see, you have to work to get saved. That's what Abraham did. Abraham was justified by his works. Or you keep your salvation by being justified by the things you do after you're saved. Those are not true, but that's what people say about this chapter of Scripture. So today, we're going to look at that. It's very simple. I don't know why it's controversial, because all you have to do is read the Scripture and keep it in context, and you will understand exactly what it's saying. That's my purpose this morning. One concept that is going to be introduced for the first time in the Bible, not the first time to you, but the first time in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 22, the concept of the resurrection is now dealt with. Hasn't been dealt with in any meaningful form up until now. And the word resurrection is not even used here. But the concept is absolutely presented because of what Abraham does, and of course what God does. We could look at the life of Christ and we could say that he's very unique and that he was born of a virgin. Obviously, no one else has done that. We could say that, well, he died on the cross for our sins, but lots of people died on lots of crosses in the Roman Empire. But the one thing that distinguishes Christianity absolutely head and shoulders above all other religious systems is that God doesn't specialize in hard things. He specializes 
and carries out the impossible. That is life from dead. Resurrection. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what Jesus Christ has done. And without the resurrection, we'll look at this in detail as we go through. Without the resurrection, you know what? You're a fool. What you have to say is worthless. You are to be pitied, according to the Apostle Paul. Fact is, you're giving a false message. So as we look at these things, we have to look back at a few things uh, as a basis. I'm going to the very end. Because you've heard me say that the promises and the covenant made with Abraham is unconditional, which simply means it was on behalf of God and it's coming true. Period. Abraham agreed with it, but God is the one that guarantees it. Today, we're going to see a different side of that. doesn't nullify what I've already taught you, but it adds a layer onto it. Because in this case, Abraham is not justified because of something God arbitrarily did and said, that's the way it is, I'm God and I can make this. In this case, it is testing Abraham. And the word test is going to come up over and over again. But in the end, it's going to say this. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. God says, Abraham, not only have I made an unconditional covenant with you, but on top of that, Pile heaped up top of that. I am going to bless you extraordinarily because you have been obedient. You have passed the test. The proof is indeed in the pudding of Abraham's life. So let's look at what we have here, and we're going to pick this up in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. And the tests that we have before us are designed to show us who we are. Let's look at what a test is. Some of you, by the way, just to let you know ahead of time, you're going through a test right now. I don't care if it's marriage. I don't care if it's finances. I don't care if it's your health. I don't care what it is. You're going through a test. This fits a lot of people. In fact, there's lots of people going through tests that I don't even know about. Truth of the matter is, God tests us the design the God's tests of us are designed to show us who we are by our attitude, our actions, our words, everything. So let's look at what it says. Genesis chapter twenty-two, verse one. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, "Abraham," and he said, "Here I am." He, that is God, said, "Take now your son, your only son, whom you love." Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. Now I have to tell you, that is not what God has ever asked me to do. Fact is, I remember a long time ago, before I was a pastor, I had a home Bible study. Somebody came to me and said, I had just taught on this. I was teaching about who God was. And they came back. They were unsaved. And they said, you know what? I know I need to get saved, but... Man, what if God asked me to sacrifice one of my children? Literally, I came home from work, and this person, and we had the Bible study, I guess, a couple of days before that. 
I walked in the door and my wife handed me the phone and says, you need to talk to her. She's got some questions for you. And it was, well, I want to trust Christ, but I'm not sure I could offer one of my children as a sacrifice. Would God ask me to do that? And I explained to her and praise the Lord a few days later, she got saved. The point is this. This is a heavy-duty passage. But the word test is the one we want to look at. Whether it's the Old Testament word for test or the New Testament word, they both have three possible meanings. The only way you know which one it's talking about is by the context. And in some places, the context does not tell you that. It doesn't tell you which one it is. In that case, it can be any of them. You say, that's confusing, isn't it? That's Mount Moriah, by the way. You'll notice that um, that's not a Jewish temple there. That is the Dome of the Rock. It is the most highly contested piece of real estate in all of the world. It's seen as a holy place by Jews. That's where the temple stood at one time. It's seen as a holy place by Islam. The Dome of the Rock is Islamic. And Christians, obviously, looking back to the Old Testament and the basis for Christianity, look to that place also. That is the place where this sacrifice takes place. Shouldn't surprise us that this is the same city, the same mountain, where Jesus Christ was ultimately crucified for us. Now, we need to look at some things. In the New Testament, the word test is also used. I'm going to read this verse or quote this verse the way it is here, but I'm not going to quote it the way it's on the screen behind you because I'm going to quote it and put all the definitions in there or all the words in there. It says, No temptation, test, or trial has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested, tempted, or tried beyond what you are able, but with the test, trial, or temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It doesn't tell me if this is a temptation. By the way, temptations never come from God. According to James chapter 1, God himself cannot be tempted, that is, tempted to do evil, nor does he tempt anyone else to do what is wrong. Never did. Temptation that comes from Satan, from the world, and from your old nature is always meant to break you and tear you down. There's nothing good that comes out of that. But a trial or a test is different. In fact, is the one we're looking at today is a test. It is to prove to yourself, to you, who you really are. It gives vindication of what you say you believe in real life. Now, God doesn't have to test you to know what you're like. He knows your thoughts before you even think them. He's God. He knows everything, past, present, and future. Nothing takes him by surprise. But guess what? We are self-deceived. Remember that verse from the Old Testament says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. (laughs) Listen, I think a whole lot higher of myself than I ought to. And you know what? I'm looking at a whole bunch of eyes and heads looking at me, and you do exactly the same thing. You know, we're all in the same You know, we don't see ourselves the way we really ought to. And God puts tests in our lives to show us who we really are, what we really believe, what's really important to us. 
My son John's not here today. I, th- I don't know if they're, they're on vacation or where they are, but he decided, he's a perpetual student in case you don't know, but he's now over at the Hershey Med Center taking the course to be a physician's assistant. He has anywhere from two to five tests a week. I don't know how he does it. I don't want anything to do with it. We just try to help him out and pray for him. That's what we do. You know what? They, sh- they will show him 500 slides of the human body or whatever it is. And then a day or two later, we'll say, okay, now we want you to remember all of these things. And besides, if you don't remember at least about three quarters of them, you're getting washed out of here. I can't understand how he does that. But you know what? The test doesn't make him any smarter, doesn't make him any more knowledgeable, but what he does do is prove to him, did he really study it? Does he really know what's in, in the, the, what, what the subject matter is? That's what a test does. And then there are trials. Trials are different than tests. Trials, if you want to see them this way, it's why you exercise. If you want to go out for a sport, you do weightlifting or running or whatever else. It's something that is used to strengthen you so you'll be prepared for the next thing. It's something that helps you to grow and mature and become strong in the faith. How do you know? The version I use chose to use the word temptation. I don't know if that's the right one or not. Because it could be trial or test. See, it doesn't matter which one it is. Because people will say to me, well, how do I know this is from Satan or from God or from some other source? You know what? Here's what I can tell you. I don't know and I don't care. You say, boy, that's pretty callous. You're right. But here's what I do know. Because the key phrase is right smack in the middle. And God is faithful. You see, I don't care if it's a test, a trial, or a temptation. You're going to fail. I'm going to fail. Without God's help, without a faithful God, I'm had. I'm done. I'm finished. I flunked. Instead of getting stronger, I'm going to get weaker. And instead of meeting the temptation, I'm going to fail. But with a faithful God. And notice he says... Because all of us, when something happens to us, we say, no one ever had it this bad. Nobody ever got hit like I got hit. Not true. He says, all of these things are common to man. In other words, it doesn't mean everybody's exactly like you. But it means, overall, these are the things that happen to people. Very different than you, but the same kind of thing. And then he says, he'll provide the way of escape. Oh, so we're going to preach the prosperity gospel now. If you're right with the Lord, everything goes away and everything is fine. You're good looking and you're rich and you're prosperous and all the Not a chance coming from this pulpit. Because that's not what that says. It says it will provide a way of escape. What's that way of escape? Finish the sentence. That you may be able to endure it. If you look up the word endure, you're going to find this is what it means. It means to bear it on your shoulder. In other words, you will be able to go through that trial, that test, or that temptation without your knees buckling. Right now, my knees hurt like crazy. You know what? It wouldn't take much for them to buckle. In fact, this morning, I almost fell on the floor when I got out of bed because it conked out, one of them conked out on me. You know what? Only with a faithful God can you stand under the test, the trial, or the temptation. 
Abraham knew that. This is not just a nice story to tell in Sunday school. This is a story that is the basis of most of life. All of us come under all three of these. The question is, do we turn to a faithful God who gives us the strength to endure it, bear it on our shoulder, or do we try to do it on our own? That's the difference. That's the only difference in this whole thing. So let's go back. These are designed, as I said, to show us who we are. Now, I would like you to take your Bibles. You're in Genesis chapter 22. But turn to James chapter 2. We need to absolutely look at that passage of Scripture if we don't do anything else today yet. Because James chapter 2 is taken to say something completely different than what it actually says. Because in James chapter 2, starting in verse 21, it says this. I'll wait till I hear the pages stop. James chapter 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? People stop long before the end of the sentence. They say, Abraham was justified by works. But it's qualified in when and how he was justified by works. When he offered up his son Isaac. We know that seven chapters ago, and you were here, most of you, when we talked about that. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. He was absolutely right and in a right standing before God. He was saved seven chapters ago. Isaac wasn't even born. Now Isaac's a young man. We don't know exactly how old, but he could make a journey. He could carry wood. He could do a whole lot of things. I believe he was big enough and old enough and strong enough that if he wanted to resist his dad tying him up and offering him as a, as a sacrifice, he could have done it. At least he could have outran him and got away from him. So we don't know exactly how many years later it is. But God is going to test Abraham to make sure that Abraham knew and others knew exactly where Abraham stood. He was justified by works when he offered Isaac. Continue on, verse 22. You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. It is not, is Abraham saved or not? Was it brought to completeness, to maturity, to perfection? Did it have its intended end? Is Abraham living out what he believed? That's what a test does. It shows, do I live out what I really believe? I will know it. Others will know it. Of course, God already knew it, but it's in his, he sees it also. That's the whole thing. Now, look at verse 23. And the scripture was, and notice the next word, fulfilled. Which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. It looks to me, I can't prove this exactly, but it looks to me is that it wasn't because of Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where Abraham was called the friend of God. He's called the friend of God because he obeyed in this test. That's what it looks like to me. The fulfillment of, I'm a Christian. 
I believe in the security of the believer. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. But if you want the complete, if you want it fulfilled, you want mature faith, if you want to fulfill everything that God wants for you, you need to persevere in the tests and pass the tests and be obedient in the real-life situations. And this is obviously a situation beyond normal. And Abraham absolutely did that. And because of that, he's a friend of God. He was Abraham the believer already, but now he's Abraham the friend of God. You see, it's taking it to its fulfillment, its completeness, its maturity, its perfection, as it says here. One last verse, verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works, not by faith alone. We are vindicated before man. And in our own conscience, in our own emotions, in our own will, we are vindicated that indeed what I say I believe is true. It brings that not positional security. That comes from trusting Christ. But it's that progressive security that I know without a shadow of doubt because I have taken the test and I have passed the test because I was obedient. I trusted a faithful God. And yes, he gave me the power to bear it up on my shoulder. Wow. You notice? It always comes back to God, but it always comes to obedience. So indeed, the proof is in the pudding. The tests determine our real level of trust. Trust is a very important thing. And these tests are going to show us where we are, who we are, what we're really thinking. Because we come to the point here to, right now where we get to the resurrection. You may not understand this, and maybe you've never heard this before, but today you will hear it. We're going to look at the germ of it, the seed of it in Genesis chapter 22. Then we're going to go to the New Testament. And the New Testament, if you want to turn ahead, you can uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 is where it starts. If you want to stick your thumb in there, we're not there yet. But here's what Abraham did on the outside. Here's what he said to the young men in Isaac's hearing. But the New Testament tells us what his mindset is. Tells us what he was thinking. So there can be no doubt that Abraham believed something. Abraham believed that God can bring people back from the dead. It's the only way you can reconcile. Hold it. Isaac is the son of the promise, and all the promises are coming through him. If he's dead, God lied. God's not capable. The fact is, God's kind of convoluted, if you will. On the other hand, if you believe that even if I slay my son and God brings him back, that's even greater yet. So, let's look and see what it says. It says in verse 3, So Abraham arose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, that's his servants, and Isaac his son. He split the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place which God had told him. That's the mountains of Moriah. And on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. So it took them, it's about 50 miles, so probably took them four days. It says on the third day he could see Mount Moriah. So 
we don't know exactly. We don't need to know all of those details. But it took at least three days. And, uh, well, we'll see. He said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. And I and the lad, that's Isaac, will go over there and we will worship. Now notice the last part. And return to you. We will worship and return to you. Whoa. Now, it doesn't say resurrection there. All I know is Abraham already knew what God asked him to do. Abraham was absolutely committed to doing what God asked him to do. Something that none of us would ever even want to contemplate. If he did not believe in the resurrection, he was as bad as one of those Canaanite pagan gods who required child sacrifice. And he would have been as pagan as they are. But Abraham didn't believe that. He believed no matter what happened, him and Isaac are coming walking back down that mountain. Now, you say, are you sure? Okay, got your finger in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. You probably already know this, but let's look at exactly what it says. Just so nobody's confused. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Notice, it is as if he actually did it. Now, he went so far as to tie him up and put him on the altar. He went so far as to raise the knife to actually kill him. So, it was as good as he did it because he was willing to do it. He was willing to carry it out. It says, it says he was, um, when Abraham was tested to offer up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son, the only son of promise, the only unique son that he had. He had another son. But he was not the son of promise, and he was not the one that the Messiah and all the promises were going to be fulfilled. Verse 18, it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. So there's no doubt about it that it had to be through Isaac. Ishmael was out of the question. He was a blessed person too, but not in this sense. Verse 19, he considered, this is Abraham, Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as, my version says, a type. The word that's actually used there in Greek is a parable. It's the word parable, just like we use it today. Didn't actually happen, but it's a, something that represents something else. Because he didn't actually kill him, as in snuff his life out, but he was willing to do it. It was as good as done. Sometimes we test people that way. It's like, okay, yeah, you would do it, so we're okay. You don't have to go that far. We do those things. The point is, God took him to the very end, and Abraham was obedient. And here we now know his, his mindset. He believed that God would raise him back up from the dead, even if he was to take his life. Wow. I'm glad God has, well, I'm, I'm just not that strong a Christian because God would, I'm, I'm not sure he would ever ask me to do that because remember, he's not going to let us in over our head. He's just not going to do that. In fact, is when we look at the resurrection, I'm going to make this quick because the Apostle Paul goes back to the resurrection and he says, if there's no resurrection, then even Christ hasn't been raised. If... Uh, Christ hasn't been raised, then your preaching is in vain. It's kind of stupid for me to be standing up here and for you to be sitting there because this is all empty words. Uh, you're a false witness. Wow. 
You're lying about God. It's worthless. Your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. If there's no resurrection, sin hasn't been conquered. Death hasn't been conquered. And then it says that if we've hoped in Christ in this life, we are to be pitied. Poor, poor Christians. You believe that Christ rose from the dead, proving that sin and death had been conquered. Pity you. What a pathetic bunch of people you are. But I'll tell you what, if the resurrection is true, none of that stuff is true. It's exactly 100% opposite of that. And that's what I believe, and there's no reason to believe otherwise. So, let's look at what these tests do. Uh, By the way, just letting you know... None of the things that you see in pictures ever could represent. I don't know if some of you have been in the medical field, or maybe fire and rescue and those kinds of things. To burn a human body or the body of anything takes a huge, huge inferno to burn it. It's not a couple of sticks. I just want to let you know that all the pictures are wrong. But anyway, what are, what are the proofs? First of all, um, they are a test... A test requires us to go out of our comfort zone. It is way beyond anything that we would ever do on our own. Number two, a test does not harm you, but it will absolutely stretch you. Always does. I don't know about you, but when I was in school, well, I wasn't a good student to start with, but then when I got serious in college, Test gave me the heebie-jeebies. They really did. You know what? Same thing happens to me every Sunday morning. It's like, you know what? You're going to stand up there. Are you really going to pass the test? It really does stress you and stretch you. But let's face it. Very seldom do we ever become better at something without being stressed and stretched. But that's what a test does. And as you go through here, you find Abraham uh, meeting each one of these as we go down. And then it says, I have written here, a test gives God an opportunity to do something great in your life. As we follow the story down, they get up, they prepare the sacrifice. And as I already mentioned, Isaac was probably old enough that if he wanted to resist, he could have very easily done so. But he didn't do that. And God called out, Abraham, don't do it. Stop. So in mid-frame, we stop. And Abraham looks around, and he sees a ram caught in the thickets. Now, I'm kind of sure that this happened on a regular basis. Sheep are not that bright. Uh, they will get themselves tangled up. He looks over, and it. And you have to understand the words. Words mean absolutely what they say. It was a ram caught in the thicket. It was not a lamb. Because Isaac had said, hey, the wood and the fire. And the fire would have been a a clay uh, pot with coals, embers in there so that they could use it to start a fire. He says, the wood and the fire, but dad, where's the lamb? He said, God will provide. Keep that in mind because the next one is going to take that one step further. He says, God will provide. He looks around, mid-frame, stop. He looks around and there's a ram caught in the thicket. He goes over, gets the lamb, slays the lamb, offers the lamb. Uh, uh, The ram, I'm sorry. The lamb would not be offered until about 2,000 years later. 
Because the Lamb of God, and when we were singing the songs this morning, I saw, wow, it covers a lot of the same territory. The Lamb of God. He would be the one who takes away the sins of the world, according to John chapter 1, verse 29. But that would be 2,000 years later. But this is a foreshadow of what was going to happen on Mount Moriah 2,000 years later. God is a God who does provide and gives. A, every time a test is there, every time a trial is there, every time a temptation is there that you meet it and, and uh, complete it, it gives God an opportunity to show us how great He is. In this case, God will provide. And one last thing. This test gives us an additional opportunity of ways to worship God. Remember that whole thing about God will provide? It says in verse 14, And Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it will be provided. You know that word in the English language as Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. That word has never been used, that phrase has never been used to describe God before this. But for the first time in the Bible, it's Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Why? Because he provided for the test. Again, remember? And God is faithful. When God is faithful, we have a responsibility. And that is to worship him. To give him the credit. To exalt his name. That's what we do. And we don't like tests. I don't like tests at all. But I know that tests have a reason. They stretch us. They get us out of our comfort zone. They show us more about God. It gives God an opportunity to do something great in our lives. And then it gives us an opportunity to worship in a new and fresh way. That's exactly what Abraham did in this way for the first time in the history of the world. It is so important that we understand this was not the final. This is a preview. It's a foreshadow of what would happen in Jerusalem 2,000 years later. And the resurrection goes right along with that. There would be a lamb that was slain and there would be a resurrection. Just looking ahead. People say the Old Testament and New Testament they don't really have a lot to do with each other. Absolutely have everything because this is the foundation. These are the basement walls upon which everything that we know about Christ and the church and spiritual life is based on. And when you see these things, it just strengthens your faith because you realize it's not something new. We just have a brighter, clearer picture than anyone else in the world. Did Abraham know exactly what was going to happen 2,000 years later? Not that I can tell. He had some ideas because way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it said the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent. No doubt about that. But he didn't have the full picture. But he still believed and he still obeyed. We have no excuses because we can look back on the finished work. He was looking ahead at what the finished work would look like. What happened? One last thing. The test results are in. I already uh, looked at this earlier. But it just simply says in verse 16, I've sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and haven't withheld your son, your only son, 
I'm going to bless you in ways you have never even been able to comprehend or even think about. But notice the end of verse 18. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, I'm not going to look at the last couple of uh, verses of this chapter because it goes and just sets the stage for how does Isaac get a wife? That's the next part. Because it says, it gives us the genealogy of Rebecca's family. So we're not going to deal with that today. But here's what I want to know. Is when God tests you, when you go through trials, when you confront temptations, does the world around you see the real you? Do you pass the test? Do you get stronger? Do you resist the temptation and make the right choices? Do people see that your Christianity is actually real? By the way, do you see it's real? And I'm going to tell you, if you trusted Christ, there's no doubt in your mind about that, and you are not living it out, you ought to have some shakiness in your faith. I'm not saying you're losing your salvation. I'm just saying you don't have really that practical security because you're not living out what's true. See, you can tell anybody, I'm a Christian and I'm holy and I, I serve the Lord and He's first in my life. And God says, okay, I'm going to put this in your life and find out. Oh, really? You're going to find out for yourself. You might find out that you don't like the test results. You might find out that you don't like what you see. Well, guess what? That's an opportunity to up your game. That's an opportunity for you to go back and say, wow, have I obeyed the Lord? Am I really living out what I say? Is my, am I walking worthy of what God has done for me? Am I still living in sin and rebellion and stubbornness and disobedience when I say, I've trusted Christ and He's everything to me? He saved me. He's given me righteousness. Am I living out that righteousness? If you're not, you have something to talk to the Lord about. I'm not going to tell you I've got this all down because I'm still going through trials and tests and all that. And I found out on a regular basis who I am not. I am not who I think I am at times. And I hate that. I th- I'd like to think, hey, I'm a pastor. I've been a Christian for 40 years. Two years, uh, you know, I should be much further along than I am. And God just puts one more test there, one more trial. It's like, okay, God, you're right. I still haven't lived it out yet. I still have a long way to go. I challenge you. I'm putting myself there. I'm not going to pick on you. The only person that can deal with you is you. I can just remind you that I know what it's like for me, and I know what the Bible says. And I challenge you, if you're not living to the standard that God has given you. Remember, He gave you righteousness, a right standing with God. Are you living in light of that right standing with God? That's justified or vindicated by your works. That has to do with thought life, emotions, words, actions. Put anything in there you want. Is it consistent with what you believe. Praise the Lord, Abraham, who didn't have all the information we have. He didn't have the New Testament. He obeyed God. And yes, he was justified by his works. 
I challenge you, if we do that, we turn the world upside down. You turn your community, your family upside down. Your coworkers are going to go, that guy is different. And they may pick on you, but they're going to go, wow, he really does believe what he says. That's the challenge. Let's all stand together as we pray. Father, as I stand up here, I know that uh, this passage is for me. But Lord, I'm not so naive as to believe that no one else struggles with these same things. I pray in the quietness of this moment and the time afterwards that we indeed would determine that we're going to pass the test. We're going to obey God. Whatever He's asked us to do, whatever direction, whatever it is, just simply living out the truths of the gospel, the principles of the Word of God. In our everyday life, our work ethic, our marriages, raising our children, being a testimony, being in ministry, whatever it is, Lord, I pray that we would see that these trials, tests, and temptations are there, and they can all be conquered by trusting a faithful God. And that we're not going to get out of something, but we're going to get stronger because He gives us what we need so that we can bear it up on our shoulder and move forward and really show the world what a real Christian looks like. Lord, thanks for that reminder through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless. Go with God.